We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dinah Weeks and Dave Woodard. Day number three of Thanksgiving leftovers. That means those little buns are gone, leaving less chance of a food fight with projectiles. Here's Scott Thompson. Unfortunately, uh, you probably just got a good example of what life's like at our house. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. It's Hamilton today. The gang's all here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Uh, Will Weber back on the board and would love to hear your last word. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. We would love to hear from you. All right. Uh, lots going on today, uh, including the Emergency Act inquiry uh, is all opening up. They say this is going to go like six weeks. Hey, I'm here. I'm here. Uh, and uh, basically, uh, why was it declared is what they were looking for, and was it the appropriate action? So uh, we'll find out where that all goes. Uh, also, uh, more information coming out on that horrific police shooting uh, in Innisfil. We'll talk about this coming up a little later on in the show, but uh, information we're finding out today uh, that the officers who were gunned down, their guns still in their holsters, so didn't even have a chance uh, to react, it looks like. Uh, it, there was a third officer involved that did exchange gunfire uh, with the uh, with the shooter uh, who used an SKS semi-automatic weapon. And from the information that I've been looking at this morning, you can buy one pretty much anywhere. Uh, it's on the Cabela's website. So, uh, yeah, there you go. Um <laughs> We'll dig into that a little bit more as well. Uh, but, of course, the big story, the Prime Minister in Hamilton today talking about green steel. We talked about this. Uh, the Premier uh, did a big news conference on this back in February, I think it was, because uh, Ontario was contributing $400 million to it. That was their big deal. And then uh, I, I think the, uh, well, the federal government had already committed that. Uh, they wanted both levels of government in on this, which is obviously uh, pretty exciting when we see this happen, whether it's an EV plant or... Uh, here at, uh, at uh, ArcelorMittal uh, de Fasco. And basically, uh, the coal gone and electricity replacing uh, the ovens there, which is, you know, incredible when you think about it. And um, so I, I'm not sure what the significance of the announcement is today because, again, we've, we already knew that this was coming. It was announced uh, about eight months ago. Um, but, you know, I, I think, th- and maybe this is the reason, the Prime Minister has changed his, 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 the, the way he addresses climate change. And he took a few swipes at, at the opposition today and saying that they don't have a climate plan. But, you know, I, I think we've got to focus our attention on what is important. And I've said this many, 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 many times. It's rather than, you know, crippling Canadians who are producing less than 2% of the global greenhouse gases, let's get rid of coal. Let's get rid of coal. We saw what happened when it was uh, eliminated from power production in uh, right here in southern Ontario. So, I mean, it just makes sense. So, um, you know, the prime minister coming in today with a lot of him and vigor as if this is a great idea. But again, it's, it's, it's old news to us here. Uh, that being said, I'm hoping that now he is focusing 
his climate change efforts on what he is uh, doing handstands about in Hamilton, and that's getting them off coal. That's what we need to do with the rest of the world. We have to get the rest of the world off of coal. And if that means using clean Canadian liquid natural gas, that's what we do. And one of the things we're going to ask today is, where is the electricity coming from? Because, again, uh, Ontario is blessed with like 94% uh, renewable energy, whether it's nuclear, hydro, uh, what have you. So, um, you know, how much of an impact does this make? And, you know, I'm guessing there'll have to be some fortification, and that will come in the form of small nuclear or natural gas generation. All right. You know, I think the Prime Minister has finally finally seen the big picture and is looking beyond what gets him elected here. Uh, here's what the uh, Prime Minister had to say regarding getting rid of coal. Right now, the first major steel company in the world making the switch towards electric, away from coal, it's happening right here in Hamilton. It's not happening in Europe. It's certainly not happening in China. Not even happening in Asia, in Japan or in South Korea, where there's lots of innovations going on. But this big decision, this big step, is being led right here by all of you Canadians and by a company that has an understanding that Canada is a place that has a better idea about what the future looks like and how we're going to get there than just about any other place in the world. That's what this is. You cannot build a strong economy for the future if you don't understand that the world is changing and fighting climate change and decarbonizing needs to be a part of it. And not only is it the responsible thing to do, it's also the smart, competitive thing to do. The Prime Minister has finally understood if you're really going to make an impact on climate change, you have to get the world off of coal. Yay! He has finally acknowledged that. And with that, and helping that, will be clean Canadian liquid natural gas. You know, we've seen this, and, you know, it was sort of always going around uh, Hamilton. However, uh, you know, that being said, over the course of a pandemic, when people found themselves in the situation that they were, and and and, and with businesses being closed and such, uh, a lot of uh, people, uh, businesses, what have you, organizations, took the opportunity to do work that uh, at least they could do. Uh, and we saw a lot of... Uh, 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 rejigging inside of businesses and such, and also uh, outside in the neighborhood, murals, more of them start going up around uh, the city. And of course, this has been a common theme in Hamilton over the years. There's lots of history on this. Uh, but uh, obviously, it's something that really seems to be gaining uh, traction and something that uh, we're certainly going to see more of in the future. Uh, for example, uh, you know, p- taking vacant storefronts and making art uh, installments out of them, that sort of thing. So a real clever way of uh, moving forward with all of this. Let's bring in 
Susie Braithwaite, uh, Executive Director, International Village, BIA. Uh, they've got their own project going. Susie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Talk a little bit about uh, murals and the history in the city, because they've been around for a, for a long period of time. You can see lots of history on this sort of thing. How do you explain this renaissance, this sort of thing coming back? Well, I think it's pretty uh, simple. I think, you know, one thing that we tend to forget, especially in downtown, is that it really was our community that brought this downtown back to life. We have an amazing uh, group of artists in this city, and I think that this is just a beautiful way to showcase what they have to offer. Um, and I think there's been a lot of funding that has come out through the government um, to sort of make public spaces full of art, especially sort of post or during COVID, you know, for COVID recovery. And that was pretty much how we were able to do this. So it's an exciting time for a lot of organizations that have tapped into those grants. Um, and yeah, we're, we're just really happy with the project that we just launched yesterday, actually. It seems that post-pandemic, and you alluded to this, uh, we seem to appreciate this stuff more. I think so. I think it's what makes up the fabric of a successful community. You know, I think when you travel anywhere in the world, public art is one of the things that you see that stands out. And I think having such a great inventory of artists within Hamilton, um, we have it right at our doorstep. So I'm happy to see more of this happening around the city. All right, let's talk about the International Village BIA and what you've got going on. Sure. So yesterday we launched our mural project that we've been working on for years now, actually, called A World of Welcome. Um, And basically, it's a new mural project that's been commissioned by the BIA that pays tribute to diverse experiences of women of color who call Hamilton home. Um, You know, a large proportion of Hamilton BIA's customers identify as women, and there's a growing population of newcomers to the area, um, especially being located in Beasley, which has one of the highest immigration populations within Canada, actually. So this was something that, you know, I took to the board years and years ago, um, and we thought this would be a great opportunity to showcase some women of color in both the art and the artists. Um, We had a mixed crew of uh, artists that came out of all different backgrounds, Um, but the pieces do feature women of color. And we have four beautiful murals that have gone up within the BIA. Um, And if anyone has a chance to get down and see them, I highly recommend it. They're absolutely stunning. It's actually more than I had ever hoped for. And um, we're just really excited. So give us the four locations where we can see these. Sure. So three of them are actually located on Ferguson. So at 245 King Street East, which is if probably most people will know it by the train mural that's there. Mm-hmm. So if you just look to the right of the train mural now, there's a beautiful um, piece that's gone up there. Right up the road on the same side uh, at Theodore Aquarius, we have a piece there as well. And if you walk a little further down past King William, uh, the building that's right on the corner of King William and Ferguson also has a piece at the back. And our last piece is at the rear of 215 King Street, so it sort of faces Walnut, and it's a piece that juts out there. Um, I would like to just, if I can, speak to the artist names, if you don't mind. Yes, go ahead, yes. Um, so we had Amani Mohamed Ruiz with Robin Lightwalker, Parisa Partovi, Ismail Razai, Leila Partovi, and Tanya Sadai as Oka Art Collective, and Stylo Star, and Kate Zabo. So all of these artists have come together to create these pieces. Um, and again, they've just blown it out of the water, quite frankly. 
so how do you how do you determine how do you arrive at who you're selecting what you're going to put up there i mean obviously you've got a theme but is it up to the artist to to create actually this is a real community event um i think one of the things that we wanted to make sure was that we did you know strike a focus group speak to women of color about what they would like to see um, and they sort of gave us some themes to play with. So celebrating women who shape and sustain society through, you know, by mothers, keepers of traditional knowledge, sharing specific signs and symbols of unique cultures to create a sense of recognition and belonging. And the third theme was a strong interest in local stories of women of color in Hamilton who encouraged artists to add these stories to the larger social fabric of the city and its history. So we were given those to task. We put out a call for artists. And we had a great turnout of artists that wanted to do something. And we just sort of narrowed it down from there. We hired a consultant, which some people may know in the city, Stephanie Vey. She used to be the former executive director of the Arts Council. I met Stephanie in 2011 on the King William Art Walk Committee. Um, and we had a very similar vision for public art in downtown. And so I brought her into the project. She took the lead on it. And it really was a community project. It was something that you know, I didn't know when I set out with this with my board, they greenlit it the whole way. They're very supportive and passionate about it. But again, we wanted to make sure that we didn't put our label on it. We wanted it to be something that was born out of the community. And I really do believe that that's what's happened here. A great Hamilton story. Uh, Susie Braithwaite with us, Executive Director, International Village BIA, celebrating unveiling of a World of Welcome, the mural project commissioned by the BIA, paying tribute to the diverse experiences of women of color who call Hamilton home. Great idea. Way to spruce up the city. Boy, you guys are moving forward. Thanks so much. Good luck. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Canada Post has launched a new loan program, uh, partnered, I guess, with TD Bank, in an effort to offer Canadians more financial options. It's called My Money, the pro, uh, pilot program, or sorry, the program began as a uh, pilot last fall and then expanded nationally. What does this all mean, and how does it work, and is it Canada Post getting into the banking industry? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thank you. I remember there was buzz about this a while ago that they wanted to get, uh, Canada Post wanted to get into the banking business. Is this the same sort of thing, uh, or is it an extension of? How do you describe this? Uh, yes, it's a modification of their original demand going uh, back. Oh, I don't know, five around the time of the election of the Trudeau government. Um, just by way of background, um, uh, as you know, I was in banking for nine years, lending money. I was a lender for nine years on the lending side. And then I went back to school, did my master's, and in between my master's and PhD, I worked in head office of Canada Post Corporation here in Ottawa in corporate finance and banking. And I was uh, saw the data coming in, and show, uh, which showed the revenues starting to decline, even in those days, from fax machine, which was the first disruptive innovation that started to disrupt the Canada Post model. Uh, wow. Very quickly and real quickly, uh, today, and this is in the audited annual report of uh, Canada Post, um, mail volume, letter mail, so-called first-class mail, most people know that. Uh, those are the letters you might write to your grandmother if anybody still does that anymore. That's the, 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 the most lucrative uh, in terms of the profit margin, and it's collapsing like a stone. They've lost about half of their total mail volume since, uh, I believe it's 2006. 
And uh, so they're desperate. They understand they're slowly going out of business unless they can reinvent themselves. And I testified before the Blue Ribbon panel set up by Mr. Trudeau, and I think it was 16 or 17, and uh, I was invited along with other people. And I uh, said that, they, you know, they have to, to survive, they have to reinvent themselves as the, as the adjunct partner of uh, the e-commerce companies because that business is growing very, very rapidly. I was specifically asked by the Blue Ribbon panel, do you think it's a good idea to go into banking? And I said, no, for a very, very good reason. Uh, the core competencies of a bank are profoundly, profoundly different from the core competencies of a postal system. Hmm. A postal system delivers envelopes and parcels. And uh, a bank is uh, populated, increasingly so today, with highly trained, highly skilled people, often with CFAs, accounting degrees, MBAs, um, uh, because lending and banking is extremely complex. And I said it will cost enormous amounts for the government to try to reproduce a bank inside Canada Post. So let's go forward to today, the last several months or a year. It looks like what they did is internally they must have come to the same conclusion. They would have cost literally billions to reproduce a bank. And so what they've done is instead they've gone to an existing bank called the TD Bank, and they're partnering with them. And so what they're doing is really just providing a storefront for you, a borrower, to pick up an application from the, at the post office. It's not that for those with long memories, way back into the mid-80s, when Richard Michael Warren was the president, and they did that experiment with consumers distributing. And they said, go in and fill out a little pencil, a piece of paper, order your, your toaster or whatever it was, and we'll ship it to the post office, and you'll pick it up. And then the rural uh, small businesses complained and they went to the roof and they just it was just a huge crisis and brian prime minister mulroney said no we're not going to allow them to uh cut into the small business with subsidized postal premises well mm. what they're doing is similar conceptually they're acting as the storefront for td and uh, they'll get compensated presumably uh with some kind of profit sharing or revenue sharing uh but that that's the, the model it'll the back office will be run by the td bank and by the td employees and the td lenders who are in the banking business who is the customer here they say this works well in rural areas where there's just a canada post office or facility of some sort uh, who is this designed for because it almost seems like um i don't know if i want to use the term payday loan places or credit cards but it seems almost more like that um the phrase i've used and um, to be a bit provocative this is a bug looking for a windshield uh, and I mean by that, I have studied the data because of this allegation by Cup W. And by the way, full disclosure, I'm unionized as a professor at Carleton. I'm not anti-union. I'm not anti-union. Okay, well, but I am evidence-based. And this myth, the myth of uh, large numbers of Canadians being underbanked is not true. Um, uh, C uh, OSFI, the regulator and, um, and Canadian Bankers Association, report, it's on the website, that 99% of Canadians have a bank account. And so the, the, the mythology is there's lots of Canadians who don't have access to any kind of banking, and so they're up the creek without a paddle. Canada Post is in these rural communities, so they can serve this, uh, this uh, uh, niche that's not being served. Well, it's nonsense, partly because banking has digitized, and we now have online banking everywhere. We have telephone banking. We have online banking. We have ATMs that serve as a, essentially a substitute for the bank, and, and banking does not have to be done in person anymore. You can do it by Zoom. You can do it by phone. You can do it online. And, and so, again, this, the myth that they're serving, uh, providing a service to people who cannot otherwise get banking is simply not supported by the data. So who would be the customer here? Are their interest rates um, competitive? 
Uh, I haven't looked at the rate structure, but I, I'm very intimate with banks, and banks are not in the social welfare business. Uh, they have to make a profit. They have to ensure that the funds are safe. The banks do not give money away, as I used to tell my own customers that uh, when they said, well, you know, have a heart, uh, you know, implying that, you know, you should make the loan even if it doesn't qualify. That's not the business of banks. Uh, people that need help, and I'm not trivializing it, can go to government. That's why we have social income support programs for people that really need help, social assistance, income uh, subsidized housing and, 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 and welfare and unemployment insurance and so forth. But that's not the role of the bank. So my point being that they're going to, I am certain, offer uh, competitive prices uh, at the going market rate. It won't be a, 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 a discount or a special deal. I mean, after all, interest rates are universal in Canada. There's one central bank rate, and that becomes the floor of all the other rates. And so uh, I don't believe that there's going to be some kind of a, quote, special discount because you're walking into a Canada Post uh, branch to pick up the, the application. Um, the, benefit, the beneficiary of this are the, is the union um, and the, the government because the government promised to do something to try to help them. And Cub W is understandably terrified that the post office is going to go to business. I did not mm. publish an op-ed in the Globe and Mail about four year, three years ago, and I called it uh, Canada po- a Potemkin Post Office. I said, do, if we don't address the decline in volumes one day and we just keep on pretending that the post office cannot be cut or reduced, we'll end up with 60,000 people, that's the employees of Canada Post roughly, walking up and down the streets of Canada pretending to deliver mail. Uh, that's what I mean by a Potemkin post office. Yeah. So they're trying desperately to generate business that isn't there for a declining post office. They're, they're, the solution, and there is a solution. I'm not saying kill the post office. I'm saying the solution is going to be, yes, a much smaller post office because you don't need 60,000 people to deliver e-commerce, principally because you don't walk down the street five days a week if there's nothing to deliver to the e-commerce customer. Unlike the current business model where you go to the 15.5 million households and business across Canada five days a week, whether there's anything to take there or not. The e-commerce model is a different model. You only go to the customer's residence when there's something to deliver. That requires far fewer people. Canada Post will become a far smaller organization, I argued in my think tank piece for McDonald Laurier Institute, is the check still in the mail. And, and so the post office can survive, but it's not going to be surviving because of gimmickry. Hmm. And I think this is a gimmick. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, uh, Canada Post, getting in the loan business. Uh, thank you, Ian, as always. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Prime Minister in town today, along with the Minister of Innovation, uh, participating in a groundbreaking ceremony for a decarbonization project at DeFasco. You remember we were talking about this back in February, I I believe it was, uh, when Premier Ford was in. And, uh, you know, I think this is an absolute fabulous idea. And it's a, you know, it's great to see when you get two levels of government uh, and three involving the municipalities, uh, but, you know, federally, provincially, especially when. You've got two different stripes uh, coming together and getting work done. I think this is another example. The EV plants are another example. But uh, I think what's really important is it, it really focuses on one of the main issues of climate change, and that is coal. And uh, obviously, we're talking about the electrification of DePasco. Mayor Fred Eisenberger, City of Hamilton, is with us now. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
Uh, perfectly well, Scott. Uh, it was a great day and uh, a great day to kind of turn some sod and get this project uh, up and running. And it's going to be uh, a, a game changer for the steel industry and a game changer for Hamilton, for sure, in terms of air quality and greenhouse gas emissions. So it's just a brilliant day. And, and, and to your point, great to see two levels of government coming together and, and providing, you know, $400 million for this project. Uh, that's going to cost overall about a, a billion dollars. So we do have to credit Arsenal Middle DeFasco for stepping up in a big way to kind of lead the way in decarbonization of steel. And you're getting a shout out from the PM today. Uh, that was pretty cool too. Uh, what, uh, as we move forward with this, is there a timeline here? Any idea when we will actually start to see something happening? So to, to my understanding, Scott, it's, uh, it's I mean, the, the, the project team has started. They've got about 300 folks identified to be the decarbonization project team for Arsenal Middle DeFasco. Uh, they are, you know, broke, broke ground today. Uh, they are, they're in the design phase, and I believe it's a two-year rollout uh, to get to an actual decarbonization steelmaking production capacity. So... Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a major, major, major transformational project for Arsenal Middle DeFasco. They're the first, not only in North America, but I think almost the first in the world to actually lead the way in terms of creating uh, decarbonized steel. So in other words, not using, as you point out, coal to fire the, uh, the furnace, but electricity. And, uh, and hydrogen, and both of the, which are infinitely cleaner and is going to make uh, uh, the ability for them to produce steel at Arsenal de Fasco without smokestacks, which is, you know, a huge, huge leap forward for climate change and greenhouse gas emission reductions in Hamilton. Actually, if Arsenal Middle de Fasco is probably the largest single source emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the province, certainly the one in Hamilton, and this will get them to near zero in terms of emissions. And we certainly know how much uh, the air quality improved after uh, coal-fired electricity um, uh, stopped in southern Ontario. This, I'm sure, you'll, you'll see the same impact. Um, many concerned, uh, it's a lot of power, there's a lot of coal there uh, to power a, a lot of stuff. Uh, are, are, is anyone concerned or questioning if there is enough hydro, uh, electricity, or wherever you're getting the, the electricity from? Uh, I think there's there's uh, you know an understanding that there's enough to power this for sure. Uh, there is certainly a, you know an overriding issue when it comes to electrification of everything. So when we're talking about uh, you know more electric vehicles and more you know battery capacity, uh, all of that is going to need considerably more uh, uh, electric electricity production, which then may may lead to you know thankfully we have Niagara and. That production capacity. We've also got some alternative sources like wind and, uh, and solar, but it may lead to you know additional capacity added to in the nuclear kind of side of the equation if if yeah. we're going to meet the kind of demands that we're going to see in the future. So there's some decisions to be made, but I think in terms of this particular facility, they would not be launching uh, an electrified arc furnace if the power available for it wasn't wasn't available. So uh, I, I'm, I'm confident that's not an issue for this particular facility, but it's certainly a broader issue for a continued electrification, uh, you know, of, of vehicles and uh, of other uh, electrification opportunities in the future. We're going to need more power. Could it be that within, two, uh, say, two years, three years, there is no coal being burned in Hamilton? 
Well, I hope, and you know, clearly, uh, you know, the, the 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 other producer is Stelco, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that they're using um, you know their arc furnaces at the moment, but uh, they're certainly, uh, uh, you know, have have a, a, a facility that uh, produces coke. And that certainly has some emissions uh, challenges as well. So I would hope that the uh, the other steel producer, Stelco, will look at the uh, the leadership that's being shown by our Seminole de Fasco and our two levels of government, and uh, look to you know clean up and uh, look for alternative ways for them to produce the coke that they're producing right now. Mayor Fred Eisenberger with us, City of Hamilton today, big day, Prime Minister in town, the electrification of DeFasco. We could all breathe a lot easier. Mayor Fred, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Have a great day. Lots of commentary over the last several days over this issue, that being Hockey Canada. Uh, we saw last week pressure uh, on Hockey Canada's executive leadership to step down as sponsors uh, started to uh, to leave the association, leave uh, Hockey Canada. And uh, then all of a sudden, all of a sudden this week, after um, I think Bauer was one of the latest ones uh, to step down and not offer uh, equipment or that sort of thing, uh, all of a sudden an about face and, um, and, and everybody's resigned. So that being said, is this as easy as it sounds? And what happens to all of these people who are a part of this board? Uh, are they entitled to severance? Is the CEO? How does this all work? Can you just wipe this slate clean and start over without some sort of uh, repercussion. Let's bring in Fiona Martin, Labor and Employment Law Associate with Sampiro Tamarkin LLP and with us now. Fiona, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, thank you for having me this afternoon, Scott. Is this, Fiona, is this a, a legal nightmare or is this pretty cut and dry? I mean, it, it depends on the circumstances under which they resign. So typically, when an employee voluntarily resigns from a company and they've come to that decision on their own, they wouldn't be entitled to any sort of severance pay. But in a situation like this, where it's very possible and likely that they were pressured to resign from their, they received pressure to resign from their employer, in that situation, it could be considered a termination or what's known as a constructive dismissal, which would be grounds to seek a severance package. So although kind of on paper, they may have all formally resigned behind the scenes, if they haven't already been offered some sort of severance package, it's possible that they may pursue Hockey Canada for some sort of uh, severance payout. And the fact that uh, initially when this all came up, uh, they pretty much doubled down and dug in their heels, that would, would that not lead you to believe that they, they probably were not exactly. willing to go? Exactly. That, that's what to me suggests that this wasn't a voluntary resignation. They probably received a lot of heat to resign. And because they had no other option but to resign, they're like, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, either... They're going to on their own pursue a constructive dismissal claim, or maybe Hockey Canada kind of has preemptively assumed that they're going to be pursuing them and they've negotiated some sort of or in process of negotiating some sort of severance payout. That was my next question, Fiona. Could this already be a done deal? And these delays where were really them just hammering out a deal and figuring out exactly who was going to get what and, and how to get them out the door. Is that safe to say? Very, I would say very likely. I'm sure they wanted their, if they said, listen, if we're going to have to resign, I'm like, we need some sort of payout. And I'm sure they were kind of finessing the details of that um, 
and the terms of that severance package will all obviously vary from board member to board member. It'll depend on their length of service, their age, their salary, that sort of thing. Uh, Can- but I expect that was likely the delay. Considering this is such a high-profile case, how does that change the outcome? The outcome in terms of what packages they're offered? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it it depends on the strategy that Hockey Canada is taking, right? From a legal perspective, it obviously doesn't matter if it's kind of Joe Smith working a blue-collar job or whether right. it's a board director at uh, Hockey Canada. But I would expect that Hockey Canada to kind of keep incentivize them to accept the money and walk away quietly i would imagine it's going to be more generous than maybe what they would potentially even what they would get in court so uh the fact that sponsors started leaving uh we certainly heard of that over the last week uh does that justify this more um you know if you're hockey canada it's like hey you know we're we're losing money here you've got to go um, not, re- I mean, that doesn't, that shouldn't really play into the assessment of what they're owed in the event of, mm. in the event of a terminate, like the financial viability or how much, how much funds the company has available to them to pay out these employees doesn't really play into the equation when analyzing termination pay. Uh, but I mean, again, those, that's all on the record. Officially speaking, those things don't play into things, into discussions around severance, but it's very possible that indirectly those conversations have had been, have taken place. What about, uh, as far as publicity, Fiona, um, uh, the chance of further employment? Obviously, something like this on your record, a lot of people, you know, may be interested, maybe not be interested. It might, it might work against you. Does that factor in? Uh, not re- if it's a resignation, um, it hmm. wouldn't factor it. Like it's not like it was a for cause termination. Right. Um, but again, we all know what happens kind of just because something's not for cause at the end of the day, this is a very high profile case, whether they were terminated for cause or resigned on their own. I mean, a simple Google search is not going to be necessarily in their favor. Right. Right? So I'm sure indirectly that will play into things. So pretty safe to say they received compensation of some sort. I I would assume so. If they yeah. haven't all like, if if I was if I was Hockey Canada's lawyer, which obviously I'm not, yeah. I would re- I would kind of jump the gun and and get ahead of it and try to offer them some sort of severance because at, at that kind of status you can rest assured that if you haven't already offered them a severance package, they're definitely going to go hire a lawyer and fight for Hmm. one. Fiona Martin with us, Labor and Employment Law Associate, Sam Furo, Tamarkin, LLP, talking about the leadership of Hockey Canada and restitution as they're out the door. Fiona, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott, for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Still on our minds that uh, horrific fatal shooting of two police officers uh, in Innisfil um, just the other night. And we're finding out more information very, very slowly, uh, including that the two officers uh, who were fatally shot didn't even have a chance to draw their guns. Uh, to talk more about all of this, up in Innisfail, Ka- uh, Catherine McDonald is with us, global news journalist, and here now. Catherine, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing okay up there. What's the mood of Innisfail today? It's pouring rain, and that matches the very solemn mood here. Uh, I've been on the streets where the fatal shooting happened. I'm at the police division 
where there is a large flower memorial growing and not just civilians who are dropping off flowers, but also fellow officers from other police services around the province. Uh, we're hearing more and more information, uh, and we'll talk about the shooter in just a sec. But first, uh, no guns drawn by the initial two police officers, we understand. What can you tell us there? The Special Investigations Unit now says that neither uh, Constable Northrop nor Russell drew their firearms. It was a third officer uh, who was at the house who had an interaction with the man. They call him the man, but he, he is the suspect, the 23-year-old man who friends have identified to us as Chris Doncaster. So, yes, it, it appears that they just didn't have a chance in that home. Um, any sort of, uh, obviously, no warning? I mean, uh, I, I understood, too, and this you can correct us here, that it, that uh, it was the grandparents that called the police. Um, I guess no warning that this man was armed, and certainly with this uh, a semi-automatic rifle? Yeah, that's, that's the big question mark here. Of course, due to the SIU, we're getting limited information. I did speak to a friend today of uh, the suspect who says, he knew that his friend was a registered gun owner. So you wonder uh, why, if that was the case, why did police not know that? Is there no way that they would have known that going into that home? Uh, certainly, they may not have known what kind of firearm he had. Uh, that being said, this friend uh, came to the scene to pay his respects. Um, you know, there was a little bit of chatter on social media on, on Doncaster's Instagram page from friends defending him, speaking to mental health, the fact that, you know, he he needed help and you know there might have been more to what happened and and so when this friend arrived i asked him about that and he said uh, he spoke about how he had spent time in the canadian armed forces he i said i from what we understand the canadian armed forces tell us that he didn't complete his training back in 2020 after about six months he left before completing his training and he said he just knew that his friend had spent time in the military and that was why i said why would he need uh you know a semi-automatic rifle because We've now learned from the SIU that they did recover this SKS semi-automatic rifle. And he said, well, that he was in the military. Um, you know, but other neighbors are saying, why would you need a gun like that? Like if you're into hunting or whatever, hmm. you know, really do you need a semi-automatic rifle? Uh, his friend did speak about mental health. And his friend said, you know, I have to believe that something has happened in there to cause him, my friend, uh, to, to allegedly shoot these police officers. And like they tried to arrest him, which... You know, usually that, that's something that police officers do when they are responding to a disturbance call. Um, mm. We haven't confirmed that it was the, the call was made by the grandparents, but that's what it's believed to have been about, the grandparents calling on their grandson. And we, we've heard from neighbors that he lived there with his sister, but for many, many years, his grandparents virtually raised them. His sister has moved out, but he was still living there. And this friend tells me that since coming back from that time he spent in the military, he was working in construction, framing homes, uh, and he seemed to be pretty happy. His friend said about a month ago he had a baby, and he spoke to Doncaster, who was happy for him. Uh, he just, he spoke about, uh, he said, you know, you just never know. And um, he, he, but yeah, he confirmed that this, this friend of his definitely was a registered gun owner. We tried to confirm that with, uh, you know, with the, with the government, but we have yet to confirm that through them. That mm. being said... It seems to me that they wouldn't know what kind of guns uh, he possessed because I'm I'm being told that an SKS semi-automatic rifle may not be a restricted weapon. Uh, let's go there, Catherine. Uh, you talked about this SKS semi-automatic rifle. Is this a legal weapon in Canada? I understand it is in yes, certainly yes, variations yes. of it you can right. find on yes. websites. Apparently, yes, you can. So, uh, 
you know, the question is, why did he, you know, was it his? I mean, his friend seems to think it was his, that he was a registered gun owner. But hmm. why does someone need a gun like that? When I asked that friend that, he said, because he was in the military. That yeah. doesn't you know, explain why someone would need one at their home. Yeah, and, and also many un- unanswered questions, including if there's concerns of mental health, how would he have the ability to get a license or that gun? But those are obviously questions that um, that still need to be answered. What about the third officer, Catherine? What can you tell us? Anything more on that? We, we spoke to a staff sergeant here in South Simcoe uh, who says that he's being supported by his colleagues here. I mean, look, um, whatever happened, we don't know whether he is the if, whether he fatally shot the suspect or whether the suspect turned the gun on himself, which is a possibility. Um, either way, to be in that in that home where his two colleagues were fatally shot, and then to have to uh, exchange yeah. gunfire with a suspect would have been very traumatic. So he's being supported by this very small police department. There are only 102 uniformed officers here. And I understand York Region is assisting in this investigation. What more can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, they, you know, South Simcoe would not want to investigate the death of their own officers. Mm-hmm. And so York Region has stepped in. Similarly, in the case of York Regional uh, Off-Duty Constable Travis Gillespie, Peel Police is the uh, is in charge of that investigation because they don't want to, it's a sensitive investigation and you don't want to look like there's any bias. So that's why they've brought in an outside police force to lead the investigation into what happened within that home. Uh, anything more on the grandparents or the people that lived in their home? Although you did just say that it seems that uh, uh, the alleged shooter was there for a period of time. Yeah, no, just that they were really, I heard from this friend that they were wonderful people. Uh, they, you know, the grandmother certainly uh, wrote about how proud she was of her grandson back in 2020 when uh, he was enlisted and when he was, you know, training with the Canadian Armed Forces. But um we haven't heard anything about how wherever they are. We were at the house today. We didn't see them. The house is still behind crime tape, and I, I, you know, we haven't been able to get into any contact with the family. And anything more on uh, the military and why he didn't complete training? No, unclear. Uh, one of the neighbors did tell me he believes it's because he didn't have adequate education. He said to me that the reason he came home was because he needed to get more education, and he thought he was going to go back to school from what the grandmother had told him in January, but he didn't know why that hadn't happened. And uh, anything at this point for the fallen police officers uh, in regard to a memorial? Uh, I understand that there'll be a memorial for both of them. There will be a double police funeral. Those details are still being worked out. They're looking for a large venue here in the Innisfil area because clearly there will be thousands of officers here as as there were at the uh, funeral a few weeks ago Mm. for Constable Andrew Hong. All right, Catherine McDonald up in Innisfil giving us the latest on that horrific fatal shooting of two police officers up there. You can watch more on Global News tonight. Catherine, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we remember uh, the Freedom Convoy. We remember how uh, for three weeks it was literally just left to simmer. And politicians paying relatively little attention to it. Uh, Police really not doing much to enforce any laws. Uh, The next thing you know, you got uh, an occupation on your hands and three weeks in the emergency act declared 
uh, and the rest is history, as they say. Uh, now the Public Order Emergencies Commission public hearings into uh, the declaring of the Emergency Act are uh, starting in Ottawa. Um, will we find out what happened? Is it is it just about why it was declared? Because I think we know why we saw it. Uh, or we get to the bottom of how it actually uh, went on for three weeks. Let's bring in Peter Gray, a professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks, and you too. Uh, thanks for the time, Peter. It was declared, uh, or, or rather the objective here is uh, to figure out uh, why it was declared and whether that was appropriate. I think most would say after three weeks of it building and escalating to the point that it was, uh, with no recourse from government or, or, or law enforcement, I think many would say, yes, it, it, it was needed at that point. But will we understand why it was allowed to progress to that point? Why, for the most part, nobody did anything until it was time to call the Emergencies Act? Yeah, I think so. I mean, from the, the opening statements today, we got a sense of, you know, who the different lawyers are going to be and uh, a bit of the range of the topics that are going to be covered. And I think we'll hear about three things in the, the coming six weeks of hearings. Uh, you know, one will be, well, what is it like actually to be in Ottawa for those days? That's probably the, going to be the least important. But I think the other two will be, on the one hand, you know, was the federal government justified in invoking the act and did it do so in a manner that uh, as set out in the law? So from a kind of civil liberties perspective, a really important question, uh, because it is a, a very powerful act and, you know, was set up with this very idea of having an inquiry at the end so that the government would have to justify it. And if it acted improperly, we as citizens can, you know, draw the necessary conclusions about about that government. But I think the other thing that we're going to see uh, is going to be what happened on the whole law enforcement side and the relationship uh, between the different police forces and their seeming incapacity to really understand what was coming and to, to act in a, in a kind of thorough manner, as you say, for three weeks. So I think uh, we're going to be seeing a good deal of that as well. Uh, you know, some of the lawyers who've seen the documents say that, you know, there will be you know, quite some stories to tell about uh, failures in terms of intelligence and policing um but you know there'll also be some difficult questions about whether the federal government can actually justify invoking this act because it's a pretty high threshold uh, to invoke the emergencies act uh and many have testified uh, in law enforcement that um that they had the tools the fact that this was only in place for a short period of time does that play into this uh no i don't think so uh, you know, I think for the Emergencies Act, the main thing is uh, the question of whether it was justified in its use. And I think, again, you know, once it was invoked, uh, things were cleared out fairly quickly. But I think, again, you know, part of the reasons why we may have, a, have, have had an emergency was due to failures on the law enforcement side. Yeah. Um, in terms of this not being, uh, you know, treated as something other than just a, a normal protest. And once it escalated to that level, whether they had sufficient intelligence and capacity uh, to take uh, decisive action. So, you know, I think I think those will be important questions, and I suspect we as citizens may be a bit surprised by, um, you know, I mean, we shouldn't be because we, we work in large organizations with all the kind of bureaucratic uh, snafus and so on that are, are related to that, but uh, I think we'll see that in terms of the interaction between a number of different uh, police and intelligence services, you know, which uh, sadly, uh, you know, often have a tough time uh, working with each other have their you know petty jealousies uh, and so even when they're trying to do the right things uh, it often uh, is difficult and takes a while
Uh, and, and you bring up a valid point, Peter, because during certainly during the beginning of this, when it was starting and, and we were starting to see how this was going to unfold, it didn't seem that anybody wanted to take responsibility for it, whether it was the police chief, uh, whether it was the, the mayor, whether it was the federal government, who at the end of the day, that's who the protest was aimed at. It didn't seem that the left hand had any idea what the right hand was doing. Will we find that out or will we find out? Uh, how much communication there was b- between them all. Yeah, I mean, I, I suspect we won't find everything, but m- my sense is that we'll find out a great deal. I mean, and, and I think, in a way, you know, for years and years, people have been going to protest in Ottawa, and uh, the Ottawa City Police and the Ottawa Police Service, uh, you know, have managed to to deal with it. But this is a very kind of different situation uh, in terms of the aims of the people who were coming. Um probably demanded a different kind of response and yeah there seems to have been a lack of preparation uh, around that so again uh, you know it's early days uh, today it was simply the lawyer speaking and then the the lawyers who are counsel for the commission preparing and presenting some reports which will provide a bit of a, an evidentiary record that you know other uh, witnesses and uh, lawyers can draw on in, in the questioning um, but yeah I think uh, when we get into uh, the second and third weeks, we will probably begin uh, hearing more about uh, some of the policing issues uh, that arose. Are we going to hear about how this was uh, supposedly an organized threat? This just wasn't people that were coming to demonstrate in Ottawa. This was part of a larger organization, funding from the U.S., uh, what have you. And is that threat still there? Well, I would think for the federal government uh, and its lawyers, uh, they will be making that argument very strongly yeah. to, to make the case that this really rose to the level of a uh, of an emergency as defined under the Emergency Act, and as something that couldn't then just be left to you know normal policing uh, practices. So I think as part of that, uh, there will be a, an interest in you know asking a bunch of questions about yeah that financing, the forms of organizing, and and whether that kind of infrastructure is still there. Uh, to this day. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's going to be part of it. Uh, uh, clearly, uh, a number of the convoy leaders, uh, such as Tamara Leach and uh, Pat King, will also be called as witnesses, and their counsel will no doubt try to make the case that that's a, a misinterpretation uh, of what went on, that there wasn't that degree of organization, um, you know, and that we shouldn't take too seriously, uh, you know, some statements and so on and, and some action plans you know, that we're really calling for the overthrow of our dem- democratically elected government. So, again, it's useful to have a uh, an independent judge hold an inquiry where we can get the presentation of this evidence and we as citizens can get a, a fuller sense of, uh, you know, what our government knew uh, and what the factual record is about the organization of this convoy. Peter Graff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the Public Order Emergency Commission's hearings into the Declaration of the Emergencies Act. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up, the municipal election. We had them all on once when they announced their candidacy, and we're hoping to get them all on again at least once, uh, hopefully twice in the next several days before the municipal election, uh, in order to talk about their vision as mayor for the city of Hamilton. Bringing in Bob Bertina, former CHML morning man, former mayor of Hamilton, liberal MP for uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek, and a candidate for mayor again. Bob Bertina is with us. Bob, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well yeah very busy though i've got a debate 
uh, in about an hour or so with the Ward 2 Duran Neighborhood Association group. So I wanted to ask you this, and, and I'll get into policy in such in a minute, your vision for the city, but, uh, you know, this is your second time around as, as mayor and, and running for this. What is different now, the issues different now than when you even first started as a member of council? Well, as a member of council, we, we I had a mess that I inherited in Ward 2 uh, with uh, city housing was in terrible shape. Hess Village was a disaster, you know, the drug lords of Toronto were regular visitors to that. Uh, the Wesley Center shelter on Ferguson. Um, there was so much, uh, but we really worked through it. Uh, I think did well. And then, of course, I ran for mayor because the stadium had been all screwed up, and uh, we got we got that managed. And with so many other things that uh, were positive for the city, I felt uh, you know I had done my share. And I moved on to the federal government. But I think it's pretty obvious that we've been in a, a, a sharp decline over the last little while. And my last hurrah I, is going to be, if the voters are good enough to allow me to, to try to straighten out the mess. Uh, you talk about that mess in your ads and refer to special inter- interest groups and the influence they have. Can you clarify that? What do you mean? Well, there are, there's a group of people who are supporting, uh, especially one candidate, who uh, don't come forward and say that that's their candidate, but it is their candidate. And they can be easily identified by uh, their social media, which never discusses issues and comparisons or criticisms. They basically personally uh, insult the people that they, they don't want to support. So um, those people are interested in pulling the strings of the candidate in question uh, from behind the scenes. So they, they need to come out, they need to say who they are, and they need to say what, what their real agenda is. A couple of things on their agenda is defund, detask the police. Uh, they also hate cars. Uh, they, there's more and more um, uh, and, and uh, problems in getting around the city uh you know i wake up in the morning and there's there's a new curb down the middle of main street and there's lines painted and there's uh, lanes blocked off and of course there's this discussion about making main street into a two-way street and oh that's all coming from uh, behind the scenes and i'm upset about that so that's what i when i refer to special interests it's it's these people who uh, wish to remain quietly in the background, but think they're smarter than everybody else and are going to social engineer us into putting our cars in the driveway and walking or cycling or, or doing whatever uh, when we need to engage with all modes of transportation. Cycling, of course, is, is a good one, but that's not the way I see that they see things. And so I'm not too happy about that. What are you hearing at the doors, Bob? What are you hearing from the people who uh, are speaking to you and are complaining or have concerns? What are the issues? Well, I, I, I hate to say this, uh, and I, I don't mean to be mean at all, but there are a lot of people who don't want to have uh, Andrea Horvath as mayor. And obviously there are lots of people who don't want to have me as mayor. Uh, and so that's what you, but you've asked me the question, and I, I hear that over and over again. Uh, and the only other reference is to the other guy. So uh, it, it's kind of, uh, 
and I hate to put it this way, Scott, but like anybody but Andrea, and I don't know who the other guy is, um, as well as the people who have traditionally supported me. Because in Hamilton East Stony Creek, the last time I ran in 2019, two years ago, I had 20,000 votes. So if I can count on a lot of those votes, that's a pretty good head start onto uh, the mayoralty election. I uh, want to try to get something in on housing. This seems to be a big issue. All three political parties were talking, major political parties, four, including the Greens uh, during the provincial election, how all of a sudden now we got to biz- uh, build all this housing. Uh, I'm not sure what they were doing for the last 10 or 20 years. Uh, and and what your position is on that. We're certainly hearing ads about urban sprawl. Is it about urban sprawl or is that fixing the housing crisis? What is your stand on this? Well, the, my stand is that you can't, build 50,000 new houses, uh, residential units over the next few years, because you can't flush those toilets. Hmm. The infrastructure is not in place. Secondly, the priority for our young people is to have incomes, uh, whether we can get them into the uh, the number that they need to actually buy a house in terms of market uh, conditions and costs these days. Now, that's difficult but you know my priority is is getting rid of the imbalance where 87 percent of our uh, taxes are paid for by residents and 13 percent by corporations and, and commercial and industrial in mississauga the ratio is 60 40 ours is 87 13. Mm-hmm. we need to find we need to get uh, jobs in here we need to get employment in here uh, as opposed to simply creating a bedroom opportunity for people working elsewhere. Bob Bertina is with us, former CHML Morning Man, former mayor of Hamilton, former liberal MP for uh, Hamilton East Stony Creek, and now candidate for mayor. Bob, thanks for the time. Hopefully we'll get you on again before the election, and uh, be well. Good luck. That would be nice. Thanks, Scott. Certainly, we know of the horrific story up in Innisfil and the shooting of two police officers uh, up there. Obviously, SIU under uh, is investigating this, so very few details are, uh, are coming out. But we are getting little bits of information, including uh, the weapon involved as an SKS semi-automatic rifle. Uh, apparently, uh, that is the weapon that was used in this crime. That Again, speculation, limited information at this time but this is what we have uh to talk more about this specific weapon and what it means in 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 canada and its legalities and such let's bring in tony bernardo executive director of the canadian sport shooting association and with us now tony thanks for the time i hope you're well well i am scott thank you and i hope you are too and i have to say that our association has many many police officers as members and we are grieving with them in this terrible uh, incident. What can you tell us about uh, allegedly this weapon that was used, an SKS semi-automatic rifle? I understand it's of Russian origin, also made in China? Uh, Also made in uh, Poland, Albania, Vietnam, uh, virtually all of the former communist bloc. And uh, what what happened was the Russians... uh, created the rifle at the end of World War II, and it was really a stopgap firearm. Um, In 1947, they adopted the AK-47, which is, you know, much more suitable to to use in war. And so what they did was they gave all the satellite countries, the communist satellite countries, uh, the technology to produce the SKS rifles. Uh, 
and uh, they basically gave them away for many years. There's a, an awful lot of them out there. And, and these are illegal. And these are a legal gun here in Canada, Tony. They are totally legal. Yes, in Canada, they are standard eight pound, forty two inch long, uh, five round firearm. They only hold five shots in Canada. And uh, they're generally used as an entry-level deer rifle and uh, used for informal target shooting. And there are a lot of them in Canada. They are ubiquitous, if nothing else. Uh, Semi-automatic, what does that mean? Uh, Because many would say hunting and semi-automatic doesn't jive. Oh, hunting and semi-automatic jives just fine. They built the first uh, semi-automatic firearm for the purposes of hunting in 1903. And they've been going continuously ever since. Uh, Very, very common. Probably uh, a fifth of the rifles, maybe a quarter of the rifles that are used in various hunt camps would qualify as semi-automatic. All it means is that for each shot you take, the firearm does the same thing that you would do. So you would pull the bolt back, eject the empty, and push the bolt forward right. to put in a, a new round. Well, the gun does that for you. So it's it's a small amount faster, but, I mean, really pretty much insignificant. Uh, obviously, this is legal, Tony. You can get them anywhere. As you said, there's lots yep. of them in uh, yep. North America and such. Do you expect you're going to hear from the Prime Minister, and and just as we saw with a handgun thing a little while ago, that this gun will be end up restricted, or your thoughts? Well, I I don't know. Uh, I mean, there are approximately in Canada a quarter million of these firearms, and they are all non-restricted firearms, which means they don't need to be registered because they're just garden-variety guns. Um, th- these kind of incidences are, are thankfully few and far between. Um, but like every other thing in our society, people who are um, unhinged will use just about anything they can get, including gasoline, including white vans, and the list mm. goes on and on. Um, it happens that in this particular case, this this terrible tragedy, we've got uh, you know two dead police officers, which, like I said, breaks everybody's heart. Uh, how come these don't need to be registered, Tony? Well, they're non-restricted. Okay, so there are, there are three types of firearms right. in, in Canada. There's a non-restricted, which are basically garden-variety hunting rifles and farm guns. Then there's restricted firearms, which would include handguns and uh, some of the black rifles that were used in competition. Right. And then there's prohibited firearms, which includes everything that's full-automatic um, some of the stuff that's converted, some of the stuff that's just been put onto lists, like our most recent order in council back in uh, May of 2020, which prohibited another 2015 makes and models of firearms that were previously legal in Canada and used commonly for sporting uh, competitions. Some of them were dedicated hunting rifles, specifically hunting rifles, but they prohibited them anyway because they didn't like the way they look. So uh, for all of these uh, different uh, varieties of guns, you still need a license to own all of these. Is that accurate? All of, 
that is absolutely accurate. You cannot have any type of firearm in Canada without a license. And the license is issued by the RCMP. And when it's issued at the end of your safety training courses and your background checks and literally weeks to months of scrutiny, when it's issued, you enter a system called continuous eligibility. And you can look that up on Google, the RCMP continuous eligibility. And what it does is it uses computer systems to cross-reference every single person that has a firearms license in Canada with every police computer in Canada every day. Every day. So um, I don't think we're at this point aware if, uh, if this uh, suspect, if the shooter uh, had gone through, was he licensed? Was it his gun? I mean, I don't think we know all yeah, of that, we don't. that we, no. those details yet. We just know the type of firearm uh, that it was. So yeah. what are you anticipating moving forward on this, Tony? Is there going to be uh, another call to get all of these um, off the streets, off wherever, similar to the handgun ban? What, what's the message? you have for people who are obviously concerned about this well sure and well first of all none of them are on the streets because they're not the choice of guns for crime Hmm. okay the 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 crime guns of choice are smuggled handguns that are brought in by the drug gangs through the uh borders Mm -hmm. and there they would be the guns that are on the streets um these ones are mostly contained in gun safes Um, All over the country, we have 2.2 million firearms owners. There's about 250,000 of these showing as imported into Canada. Um, Needless to say, by their age, they last a long time uh, with even a a moderate amount of care. And um, I don't know how they would be collected. Collecting 250,000 of these things is a monumental task, absolutely monumental. I don't know how they could possibly do it. Tony Bernardo with us, Executive Director of the Canadian Sports Shooting Association, commenting on the weapon used uh, allegedly in the killing of uh, two Innisfil uh, police officers. Tony, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Yeah, and you too, Scott. Uh, And I I hope this uh, uh, comes to a conclusion soon. Um, I think the families need some closure on this. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley coming in after the 6 o'clock news with the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. The Prime Minister was in town today. I don't think he got my invitation to join me for lunch, though. He wasn't at the, um, you know, the whole hearing thing about the Emergency Act? Yeah, I, I was wondering, well, you know, I was thought, but I guess this ceremony was about, because this announcement was made back in February when Premier Ford was here, because it's a provincial federal uh, thing that they're both contributing to. This, of course, the electrification of uh, the blast furnaces at, at, at DeFasco. Um, and, and the Premier was here uh, talking about this, but I guess today was the actual sod turning ceremony. But what I am excited about this, because I believe, and I've said this probably to you before, as I have it on the show i really think that instead of like shooting off in five thousand different directions we need to focus 
on one thing at a time when we're addressing climate change. And since the biggest polluters are using coal and that's contributing the most to greenhouse gas emissions, let's get the world off of coal. So him coming into Hamilton today to get uh, DeFasco off of coal, I think is a grand idea. And I hope this means that he's going to focus his battle on coal instead of you and me. Uh, that hopefully he'll realize, and, and you know, he, he, he was quick to point out China's not doing this, Europe's not doing this. Well, China and Europe aren't blessed with Niagara Falls or the Pickering nuclear facility where 94% of our energy produced is, 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 is carbon free. So, uh, they don't have those luxuries like we do. Uh, so that's why they need our Canadian liquid natural gas. Do you think the, the the Prime Minister is on to something here and he may be changing his focus and looking at coal as opposed to you and me? Well, no, I don't think he's going to change his focus. Uh, as for looking at coal, I'm glad you brought up China because if you're looking, I am not a, an expert in this. You know that you're not an expert in this. We We read stuff. We read as much as we can and learn as much as we can about these things. Anyone who does seem to be an expert would tell you that Canada's contribution to global warming or climate change is like one hair on our head compared to the entire body of China. Like we, yeah. we do almost nothing as far as affecting it for good or for bad compared to a place like China. So what are we going to do to pressure them? Well, we don't have that much ability to do that, but surely if we're really, 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 really serious about this to the point where we would be willing to destroy our economy or sectors of our economy, taxing farmers, and fertilizer taxes and getting rid of our natural gas industry and all this stuff. Surely we're finding some way to stand up to China to demand that they do something or else we're going to take a stand against something. But I, I don't know what that is. And if we're not doing something like that, Scott, then it just seems very self-defeating to me that we alone are sabotaging our own e e economy while the country that is causing so much of this, we're saying, yeah, but that's them. They can do what they want. It, it, it doesn't, we, if we're going to be serious about this, we should be standing up in some way to the worst offenders. Uh, technology here. Uh, 70, here's a stat. 75% of the solar panel industry is controlled by China. 75% of the global Solar panel industry is controlled by China. So they're polluting on one hand and they're selling us the solution on the other while the prime minister screams about jobs. Well, just like Canadians aren't producing cell phones, we're not going to be producing solar panels either because China already controls 75% of the market. So again, why are we fighting each other as opposed to fighting the those that contribute 20 or 30 percent to the global greenhouse gas emissions uh, again scott this is not an argument right now about whether or not whether climate change well, about about climate change in general this isn't this is an argument about what to get impact there. what argument or what impact are we having with what we are doing to hurt ourselves like we're yeah. we're we're taking it on the chin in a lot of these cases by not sending oil and gas to other places. And you can make the whole other argument that we're allowing a war to continue by this. But nonetheless, yeah. uh, we are hurting ourselves financially by not doing these things. And so 
are we at at least i think we would want to know scott that if we're going to hurt ourselves away if we're going to sacrifice this way are we at least having some sort of impact and that's the depressing part to me is that i think if you look at the all the scale models and everything else they have and you look at what canada's efforts are doing to help climate change it's almost nothing it's almost well, nothing. And you until know, you get and, the and, other countries on board it's yeah, still almost yeah. nothing and it's, you know, I find it fascinating when this becomes political and the liberals say, well, the other guys don't have a climate plan. If you if your climate plan doesn't include a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas, you do not have a realistic plan. You're dreaming just like Germany was dreaming that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we would all be on renewables by now as they shut down their nukes and buy gas from Russia. So. You know, at the end of the day, it's a mixed bag. And hopefully today with the prime minister promoting uh, getting uh, DeFasco off of coal, he'll realize we've got to get the rest of the world Not gonna happen. off of Not coal. Happen. Didn't, didn't the president just a number of months ago beg Saudi Arabia to pump more oil? Like so. So we're like we're saying we don't want this. And yet at the same time, we're saying, OK, but we kind of do. And yet now we're going to go to bad actors on the world stage when I like to think we're good actors, a good actor when we're right here and they are right there. They could have pumped too. It's, it's such a contradiction in terms. You either want the lifestyle we have where you can have heat in your house and all these other things, or you don't, but we're sort of, we're sort of trying to be half pregnant in this one. And it just doesn't make any sense. I don't think this is any longer about saving the planet. It's about saving the liberals and getting them reelected. And whatever they say, oh, it's I think all there's a lot of that. people who still believe very much in the cause. Absolutely, I do. Yes, but everybody just, agrees. But, a, it's how we get there. But it's how we get there, and how much are we willing to, to suffer? And how much, how many body punches are we willing to take when other parts of the world clearly aren't, and we're not making that much of a difference? So why do we continue then to do it? That's my question. I think uh, a lot of us are addressing that right now. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Thanks to Diane and Dave in the newsroom and the two wills for producing. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, it's just Ian Ledfoot here. I wanted to chat with the Prime Minister while he was in town today, so I tried to get his attention, but... I don't think he appreciated my truck's horn too much since he just scurried right off. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.